Hey guys, thanks for coming back on for another listen of Pastor With No Answers. I'm excited about this episode. Wanted to encourage you to go to pastorwithnoanswers.com and if you want to support this podcast, in addition to being a wonderful listener, you can join our Patreon page. we got a little perk here and there for you. But I appreciate the support of our patrons, and I appreciate you as a listener. If you want to head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating. If you don't want to leave us a rating or do any of this stuff, then I don't appreciate you as a listener at all. <laughs> Just kidding. Hey, before we continue with this episode, we got a quick ad from a wonderful band called Doubting Benefit. What's up? This is John from the band Doubting Benefit. You're listening to a sneak peek of an EP due out this fall. This song is called Nothing. Want to hear the whole track? Then check out Doubting Benefit on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, or anywhere else you get your music for this song and all of our past music. Buy it, steal it, we're just glad you're listening. Follow us on Instagram at Doubting Benefit. All right, well, this is Joey, the pastor. This is Dan from Reconstruct and Depolarize Podcasts. And this is Chris from the Rethinking Hell uh, blog and podcast. Awesome. And these guys are just so nice to come back on Pastor With No Answers. And pretty cool to think of what podcasting has done. It Podcasting has built relationships because I would say... 95 well i don't know the percentage is higher with chris i would say chris 99 percent of our conversing has been on podcast episodes Mm. does that make our friendship deeper or more shallow i'm thinking maybe more shallow because there's not we don't have any privacy man everything we talk about is just (laughs) open for everyone to explore dan you and i you know we've spent a little bit of time at the bc con but for the most part man i've gotten to know you guys over podcasts it's kind of weird to say this i like you both i like you both yeah I, i think it's it's fascinating how the three of us each from our own unique and variously differing perspectives uh get along so well i think that's awesome yes for sure and uh dan you actually just started a new season of depolarized did did y'all jump right into talking about hell we (laughs) did yeah it's (laughs) well i i uh i wanted basically a way to talk about theology on depolarized because i 
like theology a lot more than I like politics. And so I figured out this vehicle, which I call while you were evangelizing instead of while you were sleeping. And the basic idea is that uh, evangelical education kept us from more liberal streams of Christianity. And I want to know what those streams of Christianity were up to for the last 70 years while I was being given four spiritual laws tracts. So we're going to do a few of them. And the first one we did was hell. Nice, nice. Well, I'm looking forward to listening. It's definitely a very, very good podcast. You do a good job, and I really do like how you value learning about the other opinions and other postures and other lifestyles because you understand that it didn't just happen overnight. It actually happened through one's lifetime, and so you respect that. I appreciate that. Chris, what is the latest with Rethinking Hell and the conferences you guys have been doing and all that sort of thing? Well, back uh, earlier this year, we had our fifth, I believe it is, annual Rethinking Hell conference in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and we're tentatively planning our sixth for the August for August of next year, 2019, uh, in Enid, Oklahoma, um, for reasons that I won't get into now. But um, but that's sort of in the works, and we've got some um, good speakers from both sides of the debate. There are obviously three sides of the debate, uh, if you count universalism, but uh, this, this conference will focus more on the more... Uh, <clears throat> for, for lack of a better way of putting it, the more mainstream alternatives, uh, the, the eternal torment and conditional immortality. So uh, so we are planning that. We've, we also continue to put out podcast episodes and blog articles, albeit a little bit more sparingly, because I'm right now in the uh, just about the very middle of my master's uh, in theology degree at Fuller Seminary, um, which is going along uh, very well so far, and I'm super, super enjoying it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that's uh, that's catching people up for me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, think think about how fascinating this is and then I'm going to get off this feel good touchy feely pick <laughs> here. But like think about the vastness of God. Like the three of us are seeking to understand God more. You guys, I feel are very different from one another and yet I, Joey Svensson, have learned a tremendous amount from both of you and I think I've been influenced as well as far as, you know, deeply rooted convictions and beliefs and all that stuff. Like, it's just so crazy because there's pro uh, there's not probably, there's a bunch of stuff that I would totally disagree with you guys in, but then there's very specific stuff that's been very helpful. And it's just, it's just, to me, that's what the body of Christ is all about is all of us are, are doing the best we can. And it's why it's so important to have, community and, and people to talk these things out and everything. So that was kind of my virtual digital hug. I totally agree. I probably should have had Chris on the podcast if I was going to talk about hell. He knows a lot more about it than I do. Well, you're hell welcome. All right. <laughs> you messed up, man. You, you, messed you're up. welcome to issue me an invitation and, and I'll accept. And um, But but yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why I am such a firm believer in um, only dividing over a, a small set of essentials to the faith, um, which may not even include the, you know, the areas over which the three of us disagree. Uh, I, I think that when you treat things as non as essential that aren't, and you divide from one another, you you prevent both sides of the divide from experiencing the very kind of growth and sharpening process that you just described. So yeah, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to have conversations like these. 
Very cool. Very cool. So the question at hand today is whether or not the God of Calvinism can be loving and just. Before we do that, though, I'll go ahead and give our listeners kind of a snapshot of how this episode is going to work. First, I'm going to ask a very random question to Chris and Dan to explore. It's a question that I have often asked myself. It's not something that plagues me because I don't believe it's true, but I want to see from these two guys whether or not they see it as plausible. And then I'm going to walk them through some assertions I have about Calvinism and how God works. And if this is true, then doesn't that make that true? And I'm going to challenge Chris and Dan and even interrupt them uh, if they try to go into explanations because I'm going to want them to just give me their short, concise answers, and then we'll be able to circle back around. These guys will be able to explain as much as they want, and I am pretty certain we will go into some territory that we did not anticipate. Uh, But the first question that I want to explore is, at least on paper, at least scientifically, at least philosophically, you guys, do you believe that there is a chance that God is an evil, uh, let's just say, faker that basically has communicated a bunch of stuff to humans? Let's just say the God of the Bible. He actually did communicate all this stuff through the Bible, but he is actually saying this is going to be so cool because everyone who puts faith in me, I'm actually going to punish them for doing something so stupid because I tricked them and I'm evil and I'm bad and I want to see people suffer. But then for the folks that looked out for themselves, hell yeah, I'm going to you know, be shoulder to shoulder with them because they stood up for themselves and they were prideful and these are the things I stand for. On paper, that's worst case scenario. Isn't isn't it isn't there at least a chance that's what we're working with? Who's first? <laughs> I mean I'll go first. I I, I I don't think there's a chance. Um, I am not a philosopher and uh, have not thought enough about this question in, and didn't know it was going to be asked, so I, I have not thought enough about it to come to an informed answer, but my gut tells me, no, there's not a chance that's possible. I would say there's definitely a chance that that's possible. There's a chance that anything is possible. There is a chance that everybody sees colors exactly opposite of what they really are, like Descartes used this idea of the evil demon in his meditations that like there's no way he could ever know for sure that everything he saw was not exactly opposite of what it really is. But it's like a it's just kind of a thought experiment. It's an interesting thought experiment, but there there would be no way to have evidence for it because if it were true, it would be the kind of thing that nobody would be aware of. It, it would be so insidious that if it's the the worst case, the most insidious case would be such that all the things that, as far as we could tell, it would be justified to believe were false. But there's, but as far as we know, there's no way of knowing that until it's revealed. So, I mean, there's a chance, but there's no evidence at all for it. So, would you say, would you say then that it's, it'd be like sort of saying there's a chance that invisible pink unicorns are floating over our head, but there'd be no way to know it? Uh, it's maybe it, maybe it's slightly more <laughs> likely than that, but not okay. much. Like not right. much. I mean, it's just it's like 
it would be a real bummer. I mean, I, I think that what I would say would be more likely than Pink Unicorns is that, like, the entire universe is a simulation of some other kind of being that can simulate a universe, and that being is evil. Like, that's mm. possible. I don't think it's likely, and I don't think there's any evidence for that. But that's more possible than invisible unicorns, I think. So, all right, so let's take, and and I, in, in my heart, just just for you guys' sake in this conversation as well as our listeners, I mean, in my heart of hearts, I just have a sense of, like, the very foundations of this universe being built in love. And sometimes I think, man, what if, what if God is not loving? And then it's like the very, it sounds so cheesy and religious, but the very fiber of my being, like, cries out saying, but it's not. You feel it like you know it. So... That is to set up the next question, and then I'll make a quick point, and we'll move on. What are the chances that God is on the complete opposite extreme, and he just looks down at this earth with the biggest smile? He sees all the suffering and all the war, and he sees all of us fumbling over Scripture and trying to make sense of things and messing up our lives, and the smile— is because he knows that this life is an instant. It's a split second, and he can see beginning to end, and he is going to take every single human being home with him and take care of us forever, get to know us all forever, and not one soul will be lost. And that's why he can't wipe the smile off his face because he just takes so much pride and joy in this creation. He knows that we're going to be together forever. So how likely would you guys say that is? And I think I can probably guess your answers, but I still want to hear you. I'll, I'll start this time. Uh, I think that's very likely. Uh, that is what I believe with the caveat that I, I do think that wrongs will need to be righted in some way. So some people would, would hold that view of God and have no understanding of punishment or anything. I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. I think... The Holocaust needs to be made right in some meaningful way. Uh, but basically, that is God's attitude toward us. And I would just say that seems to be the universal experience of God among human beings who, ha- who enter prayerful states, people who have spiritual experiences, Christian or non. That's kind of the thing that all the prayerful people of the world agree on over time and across cultures. And it's certainly my direct experience of God. And uh, so I, I would say high. I would say 90%, 80, 85%, 80%, certainly more than 50 I would say it's impossible. Um, but let me, let me be clear about something. I don't, I don't mean that universalism is impossible. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't believe in universalism, but that's not actually why I, why I would say the characterization of God that you've just offered is impossible. The reason I would, I would suggest that the characterization you've, you've offered is impossible, at least insofar as I understand it, is because the idea that God could be at the other end of the of a spectrum, uh, the other end of which is evil. So this we're talking about perfectly good. Uh, the idea that that God could be sitting back and smiling simply because He knows that in the end everything's going to be right, even though right now people are suffering. Uh, people right now are uh, are not not only hurting themselves but hurting one another. The idea that sort of God's reclining back in his chair with his hands folded behind his head and he's just smiling and say, "Oh boy, I can't wait until the." No, I, I think that's impossible. It's 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 utterly inconsistent with a with a good and loving God. I will actually. So I'll agree with that. 
Uh, I think I was trying to see where you were going with that, Joey. And, <laughs> right, you but know, what about... Like, I, like yeah, so I, the... I do think that God suffers alongside us. I think that God is deeply troubled. Uh, what I took you to mean by the smile was like, what is God's fundamental attitude toward us? Is it one of wait and see, it'll be judgment unless this, or whatever? No, it's not. It's fundamentally an attitude of love and acceptance. And I, sure, sure. Well, and I like both of you. I like both of your points. And yeah, that that's kind of what I'm getting at. But Chris, you, I think you lend a little bit of a chance to universalism. I think the last time I talked to you, you just really believe strongly that that's not the case. Am I correct? Yeah. Um, yes, that's correct. Okay. All right. Well, it's it's my opinion that as as humans, we're working with our train of thought, our logic, which comes from our upbringing, what we were taught, and a lot of it's good, a lot of it's bad, but bottom line is we are all approaching things with presuppositions, things in our head that just make sense, so on and so forth. So I think the Calvinistic God, most of us would put that God closer to one end or the other. And so what I want to do is I want to paint a picture of of Calvinism. And and I'll be honest, I, I I know that this comes across like an emotional appeal against it, and I recognize the pause of of, of seeing that you need to be careful with that. But I also think that we need to take human emotions to account and this you know this is kind of how I feel but let's let's just stick with the facts here and I I want you guys to help me work out what Calvinism would be and and what I have written down is that God is in complete control over each person's eternity one must choose God but ultimately for that to happen God has to make a change in this person's heart and he does this only for a chosen group uh, this ultimately being a demonstration of his love for this chosen group. So those whom God does not choose, they will never be capable of choosing God, even though they have opportunity to. Uh, if you want to get super specific, they really don't, because the only way that they can have that opportunity is for God to give them that, and God chooses not to. So they are ultimately destined for eternal damnation or however you see the afterlife panning out for those who did not get chosen by God. So an analogy that I would put forth, which a lot of Calvinists would probably be, you know, hey, that's messed up. You're just being emotional and stupid. Just, But I would say if a tsunami was approaching and we didn't know, but we saw that eerie water go out, you know, a mile from shore and we're like, what happened to that ocean water? And there's kids playing way out because they're running. They're like, I've never seen this before. This is crazy. There's fish on the ground. They're running out to, you know, the sand and exploring. And there's a big wave coming that's going to kill them. So there's hundreds of jets and hundreds of pilots, but we are just going to use one of these jets and take just a group of these kids to safety. We've got we've got plenty of people that can just land on that beach, load up all these kids, and take them to safety. But instead, we're just going to pick up a few of them. So we want to fly on a jet. And by the way, in the jet ride, we're going to 
open your eyes to truths about life that you never could know, but it's only for a few of you. So is this a fair definition and analogy, as it sounds as I've been smoking pot, and I have not, (laughs) but is this a fair description of Calvinism? You have to ask Chris, because he is, he's speaking for his own community here, and I'm not, so I don't want to be the one to confirm your description. Yeah, so I, w- I would say that uh, elements of it are and elements of it aren't. Um, so first of all, uh, just a point of minor, I think, clarification, arguably minor. Um, I don't think that it's out of love f- only for the elect. I think it's uh, I think it's an expression of love for for creation uh, as a whole as well, and we can get into the details of that. But but my point is just that uh, no, I don't I don't think God loves only the elect, and that He doesn't love the non-elect. Um, <clears throat> and I also think that uh, His His saving a uh, uh, His His saving however many people He saves, but let's say that it's less than a hundred percent. That is an act of love for all of creation, in my view as well. Um, that clarification out of the way, the other, the other, the elements that I think I would want to focus on as being, in my view, an unfair characterization of, of Calvinism or, or an unfair alleg- um, uh, example or, or characterization of it is, is the. Uh, it, I, I tell you what, I tell you what, let's stop right there. Um, but I do want, I do want to hear that. I want to, I want to circle back around because I, I, I'm, okay. I'm pretty sure I can guess where you're headed. So I appreciate that, uh, Dan. The the example that I just put forth or the definition in in Dan Koch's personal Bible. Uh, do you think this is even a possibility? Like, do you think? Well, there's a chance this is how things work. Or in your heart of hearts, you feel there's just no freaking way. I think it's very, very low chance, and uh, I can give my argument for that at any point now or later. Um, but I think that in order for it to be true, it basically put it this way: if that view is true of God and human salvation, uh, and by the way, I should say, and if universalism is false, so there are some Calvinist universalists. That's right. Who who are basically they're tulip Calvinists. They don't have the L limited atonement. Uh, so I don't have a problem with that. Uh, some people think Karl Barth leaned that way. He didn't explicitly say it, but there are certainly others. So n- not counting uh, universalist Calvinists, um, that view, by the way, would say, while on earth God saves some and doesn't save others as a testament to what God will do for everyone eventually. I think that's really interesting. Uh, but other than that, I think that if the tulip view, for instance, the full-on Calvinist view of God and human salvation is true, then I think we have a very strong argument to not trust anything the Bible says about God. And so, therefore, it would become just as likely as anything anyone on the street would tell me. Someone says, hey, what do you think the likelihood is that uh, it's all Hinduism and Brahman and that Shiva is going to wipe out the United States? I would say it's very low, but it's possible. And I would say the same thing about Calvinist Christianity, if we're talking about the full version. Gotcha. So, Chris, let me ask you this. The, and and I and I'll be honest. I have I have become. I I think I can say I'm still loving, but I I need to doubt myself a little bit. But I've I've become personally not cynical towards Calvinists, but 
because I, I respect and appreciate you and I feel like I've gotten to know you a little bit, but definitely very cynical of, of Calvinism in general. And I guess what I want to ask is if there is, if there's a love for the general population, so to speak, of all God's children, why not just choose everyone? Would you put that in the category of mystery? Because it seems like any explanation for any of us, even if this is true, and I and I say there sure is a possibility this is true, but I don't think there's any explanation that could say, well, God loves everybody, but sorry, most of you, he's not choosing. Your question is, do I? Can you can you summarize the question? Sure. Would you put that in the category of mystery oh. that God loves everybody but only chooses some? I, I would say that any answers I have to offer to the question, why does God save less than 100% of humankind, are uh, informed but speculative. Meaning, I think they're based on reasonable, um, uh, they're, they're, they're plausible given what the Bible says about the character of God and his intentions in life, uh, in our lives, uh, but, but they would be speculative. I don't think the Bible seeks to answer that question. So would your answers in your mind point to a fair and just God, but you'd have to admit that it's speculative, but you, you, you have no problem with Calvinism and God is completely fair and just. No, I don't have any problem with that. And I don't think that saving less than 100% of humankind is at all unjust or unfair or unloving for that matter. All right. Well, but we uh, should, we should distinguish between two very different claims. One claim is God saves less than 100% of people. And a separate claim is God saves less than 100% of people and that and those that he does not save, he predestines to not save them. In my mind, those are completely different claims. Yeah, I agree. And they have so very how- different moral moral weights to them. Yeah, I grant you that. So just to clarify, it's the second the second um, view you just described that I am saying I believe is not unfair, unjust, or unloving. So I believe that, yes, right. God, yeah. So, so really quickly, uh, because I haven't had a chance to, I'll just point listeners to a book that I've recently pu- published uh, that, that the title of the book is the very thing that Dan just um, uh, just described. The, the title of the book is Does God Predetermine the Eternal Destiny of Every Individual Human Being? It's a, it's a two-views debate book. If people go to Amazon.com slash author slash Chris Date, they can find it there. But yes, in that book, I argue that God predetermines who, who will be saved and who will not be, and that I don't think that's either unfair or unjust or unloving. You mentioned earlier that you you think that there is a way that you can see God's predetermining someone to hell uh, as an act of love toward the non-elect. Um, I cannot wrap my head around how that could be the case. Rather than berate you for it, I thought I would ask you to explain it. Like, how, how could that be an act of love uh, to, to the reprobate? Well, so first of all, that's not quite what I said. I, I do think it can be, and I'll get to that question in a moment. But what I said was that I think that the um, the, the final annihilation of the uh, impenitent, unregenerate, whatever you want to call them, uh, I do think that's an expression of love for all creation. I, what I didn't mean by that was that that was an expression of love to each individual person who was annihilated. So, for example, um, the if, if God wiped out... Um, 
you know, most of mankind in the flood. I say if because we're going to probably have different takes on the historicity of that account. I take that not only as an expression of love for Noah and his family, but I take it also as an expression for uh, of love for his creation, which was uh, ostensibly anyway so uh, stained and marred by the expression of wickedness on the part of the vast majority of mankind. And to cleanse creation of that kind of uh, expression of wickedness, I think, is an act of love for all creation. Now, that having been said, uh, I'm not going to try to dodge the question. Yes, I do think it's plausible, at least, uh, that finally destroying the impenitent could be uh, an expression of uh, love. And I think there are a few plausible ways that that could be the case. Number one, um, if they don't, uh, if if they remain, as I, being a Calvinist, think they will, uh, if they remain being uh, obstinate and rebellious toward God and don't want to have anything to do with him, then uh, then plausibly it's an expression of love uh, to uh, to not to drag them. Yeah, so to speak, for their own you. sake. Right. Right. So that's possible. Another possibility, and I'm not saying that's the one I'm leaning my, you know, sort of uh, placing my 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 cats in. That's not the bad. What is the expression I'm looking for there? I don't know. But <laughs> you're not. You're gonna put all your eggs in eggs that in one basket. basket. Thank you. Yes, I'm not yeah. placing all my eggs in that basket. Um, also, I think it's plausible that. Um, that so, so J.P. Moreland um, has argued, and, and other uh, Christian philosophers have done likewise, argued that the death penalty um, is an expression of uh, dig- it's a recognition of the dignity that human beings have um, being uh, morally responsible agents. If it's true that right, uh, right. so if it's true that that uh, sins merit and deserve death, then I think it would be a recognition of of their dignity to meet that justice out. Um, arguably, then, I think it's at least plausible that it is an expression of love to show dignity to people who deserve what it is that they've chosen to do. And of course, then we get into the question of what it means that they chose it. But yeah. the point I'm getting at is I think these are two of what may be more plausible ways in which there's at least an element of love being expressed toward the people that God finally destroys. But we've gotten to the nub of it, which is we're talking about can the Calvinist God be both loving and just? Mm -hmm. So you've just described a way in which a God – now, neither of us is arguing for eternal conscious torment. But you have have presented a view of a God who annihilates people who choose not to be with God Mm. and that that can be an act of love toward them. And actually, I am on board with that. I don't have a problem with that. I I can certainly see how that's plausible. Mm Mm-hmm. But what I don't think can be true is all of that plus the fact, the contention, that those people had no choice in the matter, that God predetermined it. Then it might be loving in terms of it ends their suffering, but it can't be just because it's not their fault. In in order for it to be just, they have to be culpable. And on a strict Calvinism, they are not culpable for whatever the mechanism is that makes them not follow God. That is the that is the one thing that we know for sure they're not culpable for. And so therefore, it's unjust. Right. And, 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 and before before we proceed, I want to say two things too. Um, one thing that I have challenged us all with, and I think a lot of people are expecting for this to turn towards inerrancy, and <laughs> I actually would like to avoid that. So if anybody uses scripture, hey, that's part of their belief system, that's part of their philosophy, but we're not going to say, yeah, but I don't believe that's what it means. We are talking about the character of a God that the three of us believe is loving and just, and so what does that look like? The second thing that I just want to say, because I think it's so interesting, is, Chris, I've asked you before if, if you would 
like if if part of your reason for being an annihilationist and a Calvinist is just you wouldn't be able to stomach God predestining people to eternal conscious torment, and that has no bearing on your belief in annihilationism, which for me, I can actually be okay or, or a lot more okay with a Calvinistic viewpoint, given that people are at the very least put out of their misery, because I feel like, okay, well, at least they don't exist. They don't know that they don't exist. They're gone. But I just, for the life of me, could never, I just was so toilsome in my mind that, man, God let people be born, never gave them a chance, and now they're just burning forever and ever and ever. But I do think that that's interesting that that doesn't play any sort of of role for Chris. All right. Well, that's because that I'm, I, I've got a stone heart. <laughs> I, I, no, I don't mean that. I don't mean I that. Know, I'm just, I, you're, you're trying I, to be true to God's word. What's that? I said, you are trying to be true to God's word. I definitely don't, don't see it like that. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, and I respect that you're, you know, we're going to try to, um, not smuggle in the question of inerrancy into this topic, but, uh, any listener who's already even remotely familiar with me knows that that is something that I am convicted is true, uh, true, uh, the, the doctrine of inerrancy. And so for me, the philosophy is interesting. The theology is even more interesting. Uh, but both of those things, um, ultimately for me have to be subjected to scripture and and uh, for better or for worse, that's something. That's an impasse we're not going to be able to uh, settle here. Um, what I do just want to say really quickly in response to what Dan said just before uh, you so rudely interrupted. No, I'm kidding. Is that um, uh-huh. uh, is, is that if if it's true that the uh, that the that the lost in Calvinism are not culpable, are not responsible, are not at fault, etc., uh, then yeah, that would be unjust. But that, of course, to, to state it as if it's a matter of fact, is to beg the question, or at the very least, it's to state your opinion, and it's an opinion I don't share. And so naturally, um, I, naturally that's, that statement doesn't enter the equation for me, because I don't think that the, that the wicked in that case can be uh, said to be not culpable or not responsible. Um, I mean, yeah, I think the I think the real issue here is whether or not we're talking about eternal torment or we're talking about annihilation. For me, the calculus changes entirely on which of those tracks that we're on. So, are you, so are you with are you with me, uh, Dan? That you can be a little more open to Calvinism if God is putting everybody else out of their misery. Does that can that that sounds a little more okay? I can kind of get with that. I I could basically here's what I think about universalism and annihilation, which will get at that. I think that the God that I know would save everybody. But I don't know that God would do that, and I don't think that it would be unjust of God to allow some beings to cease existing. Certainly, if, if what happens, if, if the Christian claim that I get to spend eternity with God is true, then God is giving much more than is deserved, and to simply not extend that to everyone is not therefore, by default, unjust. I do think that there are certain lives that are so bad and so painful that, as far as I understand it, it would be unjust to annihilate those lives. That is a very small number of people. And if I were a Calvinist, it would be very easy to just say, well, surely those people are among the elect, because God would know how awful their lives would be. You know, a little baby who's born, gets bit by the wrong mosquito, 
dies 14 days later of elephantitis or whatever. Like that life is not worth living. There's nothing that that would I would no one would choose to have that existence and then cease to exist. But there are very few lives like that. So it would be easier for me. Yeah. I if it's if we're talking annihilation, I have so I I may not have any problem. I certainly don't have nearly the problem if we're talking eternal torment. So let me let me ask you this, Chris. W- could we at least say that as human beings, and we'll we'll stick with with the father here and apply that to fathers here on this earth? Couldn't we at the very least say? And and I get the fact that there's a big difference in God being the creator and creation, you know, being people. But can we at least say that if fathers behaved in the way that God behaves according to the Calvinistic tradition, those are very, very bad fathers. So, you know, just just the whole analogy of me knowing that three of my kids, their lives are in danger, and I can save all three of them easy because I'm a big, strong dad. I can just grab them and run for safety. But I'm like, you know what? I'm going to show special love to my firstborn. I'm going to grab my firstborn because I'm going to just show them just the the love that I have. No one on this earth would say, wow, that's a good dad. You know, he, well, he showed love. And I know he loved every all three of them, but... Man, who who are we to doubt God's decision making? We all agree that's a bad dad, right? Well, this is exactly why when you asked me if your uh, analogy was fair, because I don't I don't think that it is. Um, I don't think that the God of Calvinism. I, I don't think that Calvinism is a situation analogous uh, to a situation in which a whole bunch of people are unaware of an impending uh, tsunami and um, are just being left to their own, while God goes and rescues some other people who don't aren't aware that there's an impending tsunami. And furthermore, I would just add that for me, the idea of a non-Calvinistic God who just sort of calls out to this mass of people out in the in the in the um receding you know in the beach left behind from a receding ocean and just says please come to me um and, and granted universalism is um if it's a Calvinistic one, may be able to avoid this particular uh, objection. But at least non-Calvinist uh, forms of universalism or forms of universalism which involve the wicked, um, the resurrected wicked in hell suffering for potentially eons, which my understanding is that's actually a very common evangelical universalist view that it'll eventually happen, but it'll potentially take eons for the hardened, most hardened of sinners. Um, but but the, the, anyway, the point I'm getting at is the idea that God would just sort of call out to these people in the um in the on the beach unaware of the their impending doom and not actually go and reach out and grab them and and save them that to me is the uh terrifying God, not the God who actually does grab some of them and and brings them to safety yeah, I mean that's the worry with open theism and and process theology is that you you have a God who is incapable, sort of a neutered God. Um, but it, it might just be the case that that is the type of God required for love, that love sure. is never coercive. And and so if that's the case, then that's the case. Joey, can I give my little – I have a short biblical argument here. Not a biblical yes. argument. Yes, argument but I want to hear – Justice. Yeah, but I want to know what Chris thinks about that point that you just made because that is – obviously what 
an Arminian would say to what you just said, Chris, is, well, I mean, love is not coercive. How do you feel about that being the response for the great point that you just brought up? I, I just don't buy it. I mean, I, I hear people say it all the time, but it doesn't resonate with me. Um, yes, uh, I understand that when we're dealing in normal, everyday, ordinary human experience, the idea that um, you might be coerced into loving someone against your will, uh, if that's actually what was going on in this case, but it's not. In Calvinism, it's it's something a little more nuanced than that, But or, or against their knowledge. In other words, if they didn't know that there was somebody ultimately behind them, um, producing inside of them or, or spurring inside of them feelings of love for them, uh, and then they were to discover later that that was the case, uh, yeah, I grant that that would um, be a little bit problematic but but just to make the blanket statement that full you know full stop uh, universally um, it is the case that love that is not made uh, a choice that is a choice to love that is not made from a position of libertarian free will is not therefore true love I, I just don't buy that that's all I, I, but again as I said I'm not a philosopher and, and I don't have uh, the philosophical resources to be able to explain why that doesn't uh, appear to me to be the case for me, so much of it, I mean, I, I'm a broken record here, but if we're talking about annihilationism, I don't really have a problem with Chris's view. Well, then why are we um, here? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know, right? But I, but, I'll, but I don't think that most Calvinists do assume annihilationism. No, we don't. So, right. But, so, Dan, but Dan, remember, and, and this is, I, it sounds like I'm trying to make Chris out to be a horrible person. I'm not. But <laughs> the reality is that if Chris did believe and eternal conscious torment that would not change his thoughts on Calvinism. And it, it, you know, obviously he doesn't like the thought of people suffering eternally at, at that tortuous level. Well, I also don't like the thought of them being violently executed either. You know, and furthermore, not only would my view not change were I a, a traditionalist who believed in, in eternal torment and Calvinism, but I was for several, for many years. Um, so I can, yeah, I, I, I will own, I mean, we could say for the sake of argument, if you'd like, uh, we, we could, for the sake of argument, we could say that as a Calvinist, I'm representing the doctrine of eternal torment. Obviously, I wouldn't be, but we could say that for the sake of a more fruitful discussion. Well, let me, here's my argument for why it should make a difference. Okay. Okay. If the Bible says the following two things, number one, it says God is just, and number two, it says God predetermines who will go to hell and suffer consciously for eternity. If the Bible says both of those things, I have a very simple argument, then we don't know what just means. The word just is meaningless, and if the Bible says that God is just, and when it says so, it says nothing at all, then we should not trust the Bible when it says anything else about God. Because there's no version of the word just in any human society that has ever had language and moral reasoning where an infinite conscious penalty for finite sins and a rejection of God that was chosen beforehand by God, not by the person, is just. It's just, that's not just. That's, it's God is powerful. God has a will to power. That could be true, but that can't be true and be just. And so, if that's the case, we have a defeater for everything else the Bible says about God. We have a strong defeater for inerrancy and infallibility. In fact, we ought to treat it as, as less than the Quran or Hadiths or whatever, because it's saying this thing that renders our language moot. 
Well, that's the argument. Okay, and, and I feel the force of that, and I will address it in a moment. But I, I'll just point out: there's the Quran, if I'm not mistaken, also teaches a form of eternal torment, and there are plenty of Muslims that I believe would say the Quran teaches uh, predetermination. And so, at the very least, I hope you would put the Quran on par with the Calvinists' Bible. Yes, <laughs> but sure, yes, of course. <laughs> but, but but I meant it just it would be some random piece of scripture that someone in the world believes. Is what right. I was saying. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, and I feel the force of the argument. But but with the utmost of respect, I think that's a little bit, um, it's making a ton of assumptions, uh, some of which, if proved not to be the case, might render the argument, uh, might negate the argument. So, for example, um, one of the questions is, what is the nature of the torment to which they are subjected for eternity? Um, I think even I would probably say that if it's literal fire, literally melting off people's flesh and regenerating it at the same time, as many of our uh, forebears would have taught, you know, uh, 15, 16, 1700 years ago, I-, I feel the force of that argument. But on the other hand, nowadays, you've got something quite different. On one end of, of, of the spectrum, just, just short of that very traditional view, you've got a more metaphorical separation view, which is something more like a, a prison sentence for all eternity, and the torment is not physical, it's it's psychological and emotional, just it's the product of being uh, separated from the God one one knows exists, and uh, and from the people that one cares about. Um, now, you might say, well, that's that doesn't change the force of my argument. Okay, well, there are still others. So, for yeah, example... It, it would, there's still a problem with infinity there. Well, that's even, fine. No matter, even if it's like being slapped on the wrist every 30 seconds, but for infinity... It's still going to, eventually it's going to be a problem. Okay, so so then um, the, the next question, and, and there were other variations I was going to mention. For example, I once debated a guy named uh, uh, J.P. Holding, uh, the uh, the guy from tectonics.org, and he said that he understands hell to be kind of like being at a bar and only having access to warm, flat beer. Um, now, uh, here's the point. So I'm basically getting, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Oh, something like that. And and your argument, I understand it, is that over the course of infinity, that still becomes unjust. The reason why, if, if, if that's not fair, interrupt me. But if that's the case, if you're saying that the infinitude yeah. of that still renders it unjust, well, yes. now, so this leads to the second thing, which is that the the um, the feeling, the, the intuition, uh, to be a little more fair than just calling it a feeling, that uh, an infinitude of any of these kinds of fates would, in fact, be unjust, it seems to me to be a rather subjective uh, intuition, one that people at other points in time and other cultures would not share. So, for example, um, if you go back and listen to the, uh, or read the poem Al-Bad by Philip Larkin, he was an agnostic in the 20th century, um, he describes annihilation as being the most terrifying fate imaginable. Um, it kept him up at night. He, he was just terrified at the thought of ceasing to exist and never having, never experiencing anything ever again. If you go back still further to uh, Augustine, Augustine himself, a great defender of what is now the traditional view of eternal torment, even he said, if you were to offer a wicked person the choice to either be annihilated or to be made immortal and live forever in torment, they would exuberantly choose the eternal torment. And then you go back a little bit further to the, to the first century Greek historian Plutarch, and he said the same thing, that the Greeks were so enamored by life, so they, so, uh, they were so in love with the very prospect of living, that, the, that they would rather go on living forever in some sort of a tormenting uh, afterlife than to be annihilated. Now, I'm not saying that I necessarily share their intuitions, although I, I guess I will say I, I do. I think that um, uh, being destroyed and, and never experiencing anything again is actually a more terrifying fate for me. But I won't pretend that that's a, a majority intuition, but it is an intuition people have had. And so if your argument works, it seems to me 
it would have to say, if your argument works and you're saying that it's an argument that works better against eternal torment than it does for annihilation, then it sounds to me like you've got to say eternal torment is, um, is objectively a worse, uh, a more severe fate than annihilation. And I don't think that's, a, I don't think you can back that up. I think it's a subjective well, claim, not an objective. Chris, claim. let me ask you this, and I, I'll ask one time, and then if you, if you, uh, double down, then I'll believe you, but <laughs> I don't, I don't think I can believe that. Like, have you ever been burned before? Well, I've already, like, have you, I've already said, because I, I just can't imagine choosing eternal torture with fire. Right. But over just, okay, put me out of my misery. Right. But, but this is why I, I mentioned the differing views of what eternal torment looks like. I, I already grant you that my intuition says if it's literal fire involved, uh, that strikes okay. me as unjust. But, but if you ask me, have you ever been, um, have you ever been, uh, punished by your parents, um, to, to, uh, time out in your bedroom alone? And then if you were to ask me, what if that was stretched out over eternity or you could be killed and put out of your misery? I would rather be in my room alone for eternity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the problem with this is that, you know, Jesus seems to, when Jesus speaks of hell or, or torment or whatever, he says things like it would be better to have your arm cut off or your eye plucked out. So whatever it is he's talking about is worse than having your eye plucked out. Now, so if you're going to say that there are some people who have the intuition that to continually experience one's eye being gouged out just so long as they live, I would say people are welcome to have their intuitions. But my feeling is that very few people hold that. So I'm pretty comfortable saying that annihilation is better than continually feeling to have your eye plucked out. Okay, but that's not what Jesus says. Let's just make sure that we're careful here. What Jesus says is it's better to pluck out your eye and then go on maimed into eternal life than it is right. than it is to go into hell without being maimed. Now that's a different I'm just I'm just saying he sets up a distinction though such that I mean <laughs> It's there's still something there. He's saying this is serious. It's well, I, really serious. I agree with you, and I think eternal torment of any variation is serious. I'm just saying the question of which is more serious depends upon the nature of the of the torment. In my I, view. sure, I mean, look, realistically, if there is people who are going to be tormented forever and their physical bodies are going to die, then we really don't have good language for it right now while we're all alive because yeah, but hell, we don't have language for it. But hell, at least at least uh, traditionally and, and, and in terms of Orthodox Christianity, and I don't mean Orthodox with a big O, I mean a little O, hell is not a place of disembodied dead people. It's a place of right. resurrected living people. Well, uh, we're not going to talk about the Bible too much, but in the Bible, hell is a physical place below the earth. If you had a drill, you could get to it. That's but where we, Hades Nobody is. believes that. That's where Hades is. Or it's out in the cosmos, and if you had a spaceship that could bust through the uh, firmament, you'd get to it. All right, let me, let, me, uh, let me ask this. Chris, should the chosen ones, according to you know, the context of Calvinism, should they feel special? And if so, how should they feel about those who are not loved by God in that sort of way? 
I appreciate you ending it with that sort of way, because if you would just ended it with those he does not love, I would immediately uh, object. So good job, good job preventing me from doing that. Um, I got you, dog. Uh, so no, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, I don't think that uh, the elect have any grounds for feeling special or for boasting or for feeling like they're uh, unique and, and, and uh, uh, they can hold it over the non-elect or anything like that. And no, I don't think, in fact... In fact, in my uh, in my book, I argue that it is precisely uh, Calvinistic pre- predetermination that allows me, or that prevents me, from seeing myself as in any way, shape, or form special relative to the non-elect. And 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 here's why: um, if you believe, and and granted, here we're talking about Calvinistic non-universalism, and Calvinistic universalism would be a different story. So let's just focus on Calvinistic non-universalism. If the choice is between um, uh, Calvinistic non, uh, non-universalism and an Arminian or open theist non-universalism, then what you've got is people uh, who accept the gospel. If God is trying to reach everybody equally, which I think uh, has got to be the case in any for, any form of non-Calvinism. Otherwise, you don't avoid the problem. If God yeah. if God is trying to reach everybody equally, then it seems to me uh, that if you compare me to somebody who doesn't accept the gospel, the difference has to be in us, in me and the non-believer. Now, I'm not saying just to be just to stay just to anticipate. Um, somebody saying, oh, that doesn't mean they have any reason to boast. I'm not saying that it does give them any reason to boast, nor am I saying that it gives them, uh, th- that they are somehow meriting their salvation. I- I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is it has to be either because I'm more spiritually sensitive or I'm smarter or I'm wiser or, or you know, whatever, uh, more humble. There's got to be something in me uh, that made me, uh, that, that made it possible for me to accept the gospel, that prompted me to accept the gospel, uh, that wasn't true of the other person. Uh, Even a better upbringing. I mean, anything. Yeah, right, all right, upbringing, anything. Anything about me and my history. Something about me makes me different from the non-believer such that I am responding to this universal, equally given call, and the other person is not. Now, if Calvinism is true, and I'll let you interject, I mean, I'll let you respond to that in a moment, um, but if Calvinism is true, then the th- then what differentiates me from another person has absolutely nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me and nothing to do with the unbeliever. I can take no credit for that, and I can hold nothing over the non-believer. That's, that's one of the major reasons, uh, philosophically anyway, that I think Calvinism carries some weight. I think this is why people are Calvinists. I mean, if I could venture a guess, I think this is actually the most beautiful thing about Calvinism. My wife and I go to a Calvinist church— not everybody at it is Calvinist, but it is Presbyterian. And I think that this is what people mean when they say they find it so helpful, is that it, in fact, it disabuses them of any notion of it being, you know, their own uh, worth, their own merit. Mm. So this is, I think this is, like, if we're going to try and preserve something about Calvin and Calvinism, <laughs> which, uh, you know, some of my friends would say, don't preserve anything. But I would say, no, this is for sure worth preserving. I would just say on the Arminian side, uh, it does like the the counter argument does not actually work. Like, um, so God created the universe 14 billion years ago. He made matter out of no matter. He created sentient beings, and then I said yes at VBS. Just does not. That's not enough to register, except in a really narcissistic way, as me having done anything, quote unquote. So I don't think that 
non-Calvinists are actually prey to that, like fall prey to that. But I do think that even just speaking anthropologically, this is actually a thing that Calvinists find find helpful in their faith. And Chris is just given his version of that. Well, it's what I will say, though, is it's unfortunate that more Calvinists don't take that to heart, because um, sure. I, I see a lot of Calvinists and, and a lot of Arminians, and, and well, I should say non-Calvinists, because I'm talking open theists, too. Uh, I see a lot of Calvinists, and I see a lot of non-Calvinists uh, exhibit a whole lot of, seemingly anyway, a whole lot of pride, arrogance, um, you know, etc. And I think Calvinists have less ground for doing that. I'm not saying that Arminians and, and open theists have ground. I'm just saying that Calvinists seem to have less ground, less less plausible reason for, for doing it, and yet so many of them are just as prideful and arrogant as non-Calvinists, and I think that's a, a real tragedy. Hey, Chris, given the context of the penal substitution, atonement, the great exchange, why didn't Jesus have to be annihilated once and for all in order for the saints to inherit eternal life? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. It's a question that I um, seek to address in my uh, recent article in the McMaster Journal of Theology and Ministry. If people go to academia.edu and look up Christopher Date, uh, they'll find me and they'll find that article for free. And basically what I argue in that article is that we annihilationists are not saying that the punishment deserved by sin and and that Jesus bore as our substitute was annihilation in the sense of being for you know caused to cease to exist. We believe that the punishment is death. And whether a person uh, ceases to live, ceases to uh, enjoy, and by enjoy I just mean have, I don't mean like appreciate or whatever. They, they, if they cease to have uh, psychosomatic life, you know, life in uh, uh, mind and body, and their body dies, then even if they go on uh, experiencing some sort of an intermediate state in a disembodied soul, they've still suffered death, and if the death penalty is what awaits the finally lost as well, um, and they lose their lives, but then in addition to their bodies dying, they also cease to exist because their souls are destroyed. In either case, the penalty is death, and that's why I think that it can be, um, it can genuinely be said to be a substitute. Now that raises the question, well, why then do, do the souls of the um, wicked not also go on, you know, existing in some sort of an intermediate forever state? Uh, and I can suggest reasons why that might be the case, but the point is the penalty is death, not annihilation in yeah. the sense of ceasing to exist. That makes sense. That makes sense. So I have this, uh, I'd like to explain why I'm not a Calvinist, if I could. Um, because it's it. not going to be as violent as someone else's might be. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it really comes down to um, a plurality of legitimate theological options. And we were talking about the Quran earlier, and actually I have this kind of thought experiment with uh, Muslims that I'll, I would like to share real quick. So let's say that I was interested in becoming a Muslim, uh, and I talked to this one Muslim, and, and he says, uh, okay, he tells me all the things they believe, and included in all the things that Muslims believe, according to this guy, is that Allah chooses who will be saved and who will be damned to eternal punishment before they're ever born, and they have no will about this. Now, let's say I respond to my Muslim friend by saying, hey, that sounds pretty bad. Why should I believe that? And he says, it's written right here in the Quran. I go, okay. But then I say, now, does every Muslim believe that that's how the Quran should be interpreted? And if he says yes, then I probably will not become a Muslim. If he says no, 
there are other Muslims that have a different interpretation of that part of the Quran. I will say, okay, I'd like to speak to that guy then. I'd like to speak to that Muslim first and see if I could understand Islam in a way that makes sense to me, because this way does not make sense to me. And I think that this thought experiment is exactly what we're presented as Christians in America, is there are Calvinists, and there are Armenian Armenians, and there are open theists, and there are Catholics who sometimes drift around those, as well as Eastern Orthodox. And I think that they're all viable. They all have shown fruit. They've borne fruit in the world, in the body of Christ. And so for me, it might be true that Calvinism is true, but if I try to make sense of it, it bewilders me. It does not look like the God I love and worship, the God that I think communicates with me and pursues me. And so I think it can be perfectly fine for people for whom it does work, but it doesn't for me. And and since I have five other totally different options that seem to me to be quite worthy, uh, I'll just go with one of those. Do you think in a, in reducing that to, in its simplest form would be two humans trying to explain to an alien that's blind what a penny is, and they're both looking at it on opposite ends, and one of them saying, I mean, it's like this head on it, and the other one saying, no, it's this building. They're both right. They're describing the same thing, but they can only see one part, and then obviously multiply that by a billion with God. Yeah, I mean, it's something like that. I mean, just even within our own tradition, we exp- we right. believe things different than we used to. You know, I we're not going to get into the biblical stuff, but like the way that words are uh, translated over the years. You know, if you look at the early English Bibles to today, it's like there is a we just do change a lot. Most Christians thought black and white people shouldn't get married a hundred years ago in this country, and they had biblical reasons for it. Like we just we do change, and so. I think that it's not problematic that we have different understandings. I don't know what the mechanism is for why that's the case, but we just clearly do. And uh, the question for me is, are all the other ones excluded because of some particular argument I've read or came up with? I think no, because there are really brilliant and devout scholars in each of those branches that I mentioned. And I can't just paint them all with the brushes like, oh, those people are obviously just wanting to sin, or those people are obviously mistaken because of some cultural reason or whatever. Like, it's these are all live questions. I'm just going to go with an expression of Christianity that doesn't grate fundamentally against my intuitions about love and justice. Okay. But as far as a Calvinistic, eternal, conscious, fiery torment... You don't see how that could be a possibility. Are you asking me or Chris? I'm asking you, Mr. Dan. Yeah, I mean, look, anything is possible. Right. I don't know how I could worship that God. And I don't and I certainly the God that I believe I experience does not look like that. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. So, if I might then give a very short explanation of why I'm a Calvinist, um, Yeah. For me, it's uh, there are several recognitions here uh, that that I uh, that I take very seriously, and that I don't, and I'm not uh, alleging that Dan wouldn't also share. He may, I, I don't know. Um, number one, I don't think that plurality of interpretation implies that one of those interpretations isn't right, and objectively so. Number two, um, I have examined the alternative explanations of the various texts that convince me that Calvinism is true, and they don't hold up to argumentation. Uh, 
Um, and there are a number of examples. I don't think, I should stress that, I don't think they hold up to, uh, to argumentation or to examination. And so, yeah, I understand there are great, brilliant people, um, brilliant exegetes who understand certain texts differently than I do. Um, I think it's very plausible that they are, um, that they are, uh, they have presuppositions that lead them to conclude as they do, just as just as that's very plausibly the case for me. But the fact that people have presuppositions that may lead them to different conclusions doesn't, for me, mean we can just sort of pick and choose whichever one makes the most sense uh, to, to us. And in my case, I don't find, for, for some of the reasons I've already articulated and for others that we've not yet gotten to, I don't find the non-Calvinist um, system uh, to be one that makes sense and to be one that uh, is consistent with um, uh, justice and, and, and God's love and so forth. And so for me, when I look at texts like uh, the passages in Genesis that I quote or the passages in Acts, uh, Acts 2 or Acts 4 um, and others— I don't see any plausible non-Calvinistic interpretation, no matter how many times they try to present them to me. And so I just, I, I feel constrained to accept what I see the Bible teaching. Um, and even if, I will say this, even if I did share Dan's intuitions, um, I'd like to say, at least, whether or not this would hold true is another question. I'd like to say that even then, I would feel constrained by... Um, uh, by the direction that I see the text leading me. And, and as an example in support that that's what I would do, um, I didn't want to become a conditionalist, an annihilationist. Uh, I wanted to remain uh, a believer in eternal torment because of how easy th that would make things. It, doors have closed to ministry and to education and to other things. I've lost friendships and, and relationships over this. And I knew that that would be the case, and yet I followed where I felt Scripture was uh, constraining me to go. So that's why I'm a Calvinist. A Calvinist is simply because I, I don't agree with Dan that the various pr uh, proof texts that Calvinists tend to cite and support for their view have plausible alternative explanations. So it does go back to inerrancy. I warned you about it. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, we hey. don't have time. Can I just r briefly respond to that? Yeah. Very short. Yep. And then I'm going to ask one more question. We'll have to call it a night. Uh, Chris, I think that like whatever everything you just described is stuff that you are complete with within your rights as an individual Christian, sort of thinking through stuff, a, a theologian. That means Dan's about to going to try to blast you. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Uh, I I don't. I I hate the term pick and choose. It is a term that is only ever leveled from the right to the left, and yet I think that picking and choosing an interpretation happens all the time. For instance, you have read alternate accounts of those texts and you don't find them plausible just like i have read theologies that are calvinist and i don't find them plausible and we're i think that we're doing the exact same thing we are basing it on our intuition and that's the best thing we've got it's our reason and we're looking at other because there are of course it's not just what the text says but there are theories of how to interpret the text there's overall hermeneutic there's exegetical differences and you and i each have different presuppositions and different intuitions on how those link up and that's, you know, that stuff never stops either. It's always going on in the background. I want to be clear that I'm not saying that I that there's no way of knowing which of these streams of Christianity is accurate. I do believe in objective truth. What I'm saying is I don't believe that God's primary concern with me is that I figure out which one of those streams is accurate, but rather God's primary concern is that I get to the business of loving God and loving my neighbor. And for me, if I were to try and 
force myself into Calvinism, it would get in the way of that. That's fine, and and I think I, w- I would share that sentiment that that God is more concerned. I wouldn't say only, but more concerned with how we treat others. More, and, yeah, right. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and let me just say uh, for for the record that all I meant, I, I didn't mean anything negative by saying pick and choose. I was just going by the mental exercise that you that you described, where you know you you see a variety of different interpretations right. that all seem plausible to you, so you go with the one that makes sense with your with your theological and pre and philosophical intuitions. And I'm just saying, uh, for me, yes, you're, you're right. We're both using reason and intuition and things. Uh, it's just the, the basis of my reason is first and foremost biblical. And I'm not saying that yours isn't. I'm just saying that for me... No, you, no of course, you know what I'm going to say is, yeah, but the way you read the Bible and what you think the Bible has to say in a given moment... All of that stuff is presuppositional and based on your philosophical intuitions. The, All right, the, this the will have to be Dan, Dan and Chris yeah, part three. We got to Dan stop. and Chris part three. All right, so here is a verse. I'm going to read it, and then very concisely, I want you guys with how you approach spirituality, God, the Bible, whatever. How do you hear this verse, and what does it mean to you? And that's 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Dan. Uh, I think that this is evidence within the New Testament that God deeply desires the salvation of all. And I think that it is the limited, uh, basically, that there is a limitation in the minds of the New Testament writers that they could not, they could not fully embrace that, just like they couldn't fully embrace women being equal there being no slavery, etc. So I will, uh, as no surprise to anybody familiar with common Calvinist treatments of this text, I don't take him to be talking about being patient toward all mankind. I take him to be saying, I am patient toward you, the, the Greek word sue there, his readers, um, the, the, the Christians to whom he's writing. Uh, if it's true, if Calvinism is true that God has um, foreordained a, a specific people uh, to, to be saved, and if at any given time some of those people are around but are not yet... Um, uh, have not yet been converted, then God is going to deal with them patiently until he has ordained that they do come to be, believe, and I think that's what's going on here, and that's why I think that he's using the the second-person pronoun in the language here. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, the implication being that the you is, or the, the, the any, uh, is, is any of you. Guys, it was awesome. It was about as good as I thought it was going to be. Well, Very we should, fun. We should do a round two at some point so we can continue the discussion. I'm really enjoying it. But yes, and I think it would be around three, correct? Oh, yeah, three. Well, on, but yeah. not on this specific topic, right? That's true. You guys are like the Clemson and Alabama of Pastor With No Answers. <laughs> I don't, I don't well, get that. Well, I always, I always love uh, being on here with Chris. Chris, I really respect you, and I just, it's, it's a pleasure to be able to talk with someone with such, with disagreements so far down in our intuitions. But uh, I hope, I think mutual respect, certainly I toward you. Uh, Very much so in reverse as well.